I want to welcome everyone to the Tuesday edition of Bible Quest, BibleQuest.tv. We're very happy you were able to join us today. We have a very interesting topic. I do want to start off with an apology. Last week, um, I sent out an email to those that were, are registered through the BibleQuest.tv app, the Zoom app. And I let everyone know on that email that we weren't doing last Tuesday, but there was a number of people on Facebook or YouTube that weren't, was not aware of that, and I wasn't able to send out a notice to those uh, people that watch the program from YouTube or Facebook. So I apologize for that. I'm going to work on a way where I can do that in the future. But we had everyone away at camps and doing different things, so I want to apologize for us not being there. But we're here today live. And uh, speaking of live, Scott, did you want to add to that? Uh, well, on that note, if we want to get notice out ahead of time, we might as well point out that next week will be the same. Uh, and so several of us will be gone as well next week. That's right. So thank you for that. And yes, summer gives us op other opportunities to do things that interfere with the Tuesday program. So thank you for bringing that up. We will not be here next Tuesday, and I'll send out a notice on that as well. And I'll try to make announcement on that on the respective uh, Facebook pages and YouTube channels. Stephen, good to see you here also today. Hey, good to be here, guys. Thanks. And Jonathan, I see Jonathan's here, right, Jonathan? Good to have you today with us. Yeah, good to see you guys today. There you go. So um, I think so. We do want everyone, whether you're watching us through the Facebook page, I think we're on Scott's Facebook page today, right? Good. Yep, that's correct. So if you're coming in through Scott's page, you can comment there live. Perfect. And on the uh, app, you guys coming in on the app, you know how to use the Q&A button or the chat uh, box. Just ask away. So we're going to have some things to talk about today. Uh, Scott, why don't you take over and as program director, get us started. All right. So we had a question submitted that has to do with when should we consider an example something that should be ob obligatory upon us. Uh, and I think a simple way to start this will be to start broadly and think of what are some ways in which clearly we're supposed to follow examples in the Bible and what would be some clearly some ways in which particular examples that we see in the Bible aren't what we would need to do. And then we'll start discussing what's the difference between those two things and we'll take a few case studies. So, um, and, and when this gets brought up, sometimes it will be brought up in this nature, that we shouldn't look at examples in the Bible, only commands, because examples are applied arbitrarily. Somebody says, oh, we have to follow this example, but not that example. So let's just begin with that. On a very broad sense, uh, what text would you go to to show that it's very, very biblical to pay attention to uh, examples? Well, I think I really. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. So I think about John 13, where uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then tells them um, that you know, they need to do just as he's done to them. And we can read that in John 13 uh, after he finishes washing their feet. Um, he says, uh, verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should you should do just as I have done to you. Okay. Yeah. And then, 
And, and then on a broader sense, that's one specific example, but a broader sense, Peter, one of the apostles in first Peter um, chapter two, verse 21, he, he mentions Christ uh, leaving an example. First Peter two twenty one. for this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So you might follow in his steps. So Jesus is, if there's anyone to follow an example of Jesus would have been person to follow the example of what he did. So let's, let's start with this. So we've got two passages about following the examples of Jesus. And let, let's explore it a little bit. So um, in First Peter 2, it said we should follow in his steps. And what particular steps did it describe? First Peter 2, it's the suffering. example of suffering. Yeah, well, innocent suffering specifically. And while he suffered, what did he avoid doing? didn't revile, didn't threaten, or, you know, uh, sin with his mouth when he uh, was, w- was uh, slandered. All right. So suppose uh, I read First Peter 2, and it says, Jesus suffered, leaving me an example that I should follow in his steps. So I go to Jerusalem. I let the tour guide tell me where the steps are that he walked. I get somebody to put a cross on me. I get somebody to nail a cross, me to a cross. And then I hope that on the third day I rise. What am I missing? So there's a a, a principle there where it's not that I'm going to go die for everyone's sins like Jesus did, but Jesus suffered innocently. And if I suffer for doing what's right, I'm following in the steps of Jesus as long as I act like he did. And while, while suffering, he continued to do what's right. So that makes it pretty easy to see. Yeah, it would be ridiculous to say I'm to do everything Jesus did there because I can't die for people's sins. and I wouldn't be raised on the third day. But that that doesn't mean that his example is unimportant to us because the principles in it are. All right, Drew, it looks like you have a comment. Well, on that, still in a broader sense, I was looking at uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul was saying, uh, starting in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to Follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So here's an example that he's saying, follow our example. He's, he's not Jesus. He's a man. Right. But there is a, a, a condition on that, isn't there, Scott? As he did, and what he was doing, he was showing them how to not be undisciplined and there were a few people at Thessalonica that had a habit, as the text goes on to describe, of not working but being busybodies and expecting other people to take care of them. And he had not only taught them, verse 10, while we were with you, we said, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. Well, that's a command. But then there was also the example of Paul working and providing for him. And so the point I guess we're making here is that there is biblical principle that we are to follow examples exactly the, the, to look at the bible and say unless there's a verse that says don't do this it's a sin i've, I've even had people say when i show them what a text says to do and they say but it doesn't say if you don't do it it's a sin 
you know, it'll, it, it might say don't do it in, in words, but it, if it does say it's a sin, well, even in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say thou shalt not commit adultery because it's a sin. Thou shalt not steal because it's a sin. We need to pay attention to commandments, but of course the Bible teaches by example. Now, let's talk about this though, because some in our audience are probably saying, well, you guys are talking about behavior and attitudes and principles. We're talking about the work and worship of a church. You know what? The Bible talks more about behavior and morals and attitudes than it does the worship and work of the church. But if we see that commands and examples are important in one area, why shouldn't we be able to also learn in the other? So let's take a look at a couple of verses that are often used maybe to stress what we might call doctrinal points. And even that word, you know, if, if people say, let's talk about something doctrinal, what do they usually mean? People will sometimes talk about, oh, well, like that's a moral teaching or that's a doctrinal teaching. And they'll say like, well, moral stuff is like, you know, don't steal, don't sleep around, don't cuss, you know, like kind of like good things and bad things that you do personally, whereas like doctrinal, that's like, how we worship, what we believe about God, what we believe about the church and like kind of like stuff that's more on paper (laughs) somewhere. And really that's not a biblical distinction because the word doctrine just means teaching. It's a generic straight. That will be Titus two. You'll people talk about, well, does that church teach sound doctrine? Let's see what sound doctrine is. Titus two. You speak the things which befit the sound doctrine. And if you got your Bible, open it with me. See if I read this right. Speak the things which befit the sound doctrine. Have a plurality of elders, assemble on the first day of the week, use unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. The <laughs> uh, Bible says those things, but not right here. <laughs> That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage says, speak thou the things which befit the sound doctrine, that older men should be what? Sober-minded. Yeah. Yeah. Older women should do what? Reverent behavior, not malicious, gossips. And teach the younger women to do what? In verse 4 and 5. Love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That's sound doctrine. So let's start off with just noting that sometimes people get these, they emphasize one thing too much and ignore another thing. Would, uh, Scott, let me ask you, you think sometimes people get that mixed up because there are uh, church creeds and church doctrines that go beyond what the scriptures teach. And so they think of this, when you say doctrine, it's, oh, what the church says, but that's not moral stuff. That's the the liturgy and the church methodology of doing things. Yes. And I'll tell you, there's this, a lot of biblical teaching is by nature reactionary. But then if you look at the reactionary teaching, you can get really off balance. Let let me illustrate that. Even in the new Testament, name an epistle that was written in reaction to false doctrine. Galatians. Galatians. Yeah, yeah. Galatians would not have been written 
had it not been for the fact that the Judaizers went in there, bewitched them, uh, took them away to a different gospel, and they're accepting circumcision and starting to follow the Jewish calendar. That's why Galatians is written. It's reacting to that. Well, over, over the years, in a lot of preaching, people have reacted to denominational practices that are unbiblical and without precedent in the Bible by focusing on, no, you need to do it this way. And I want to be biblical. I want to follow the biblical text. But in some of that preaching, people used passages which were really focused a little more on attitude and behavior, and they applied the principle here. Not that you couldn't have a principle applied, but sometimes people heard a text used only in one sense and missed the initial sense. But now we've come to a place where other people are saying, no, it can't mean that. Now that sounded obscure, so let me illustrate. Let's all turn to Philippians chapter 4. Repeat that, Philippians what? Philippians chapter 4. All right, so if I look to the epistles of Paul, and, and the Gospel of Luke, in uh, the book of Acts, describing the early church. And if when I look to those books, here are some of the things that I see. That they took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. That evangelists were supported by churches directly. Uh, that uh, the elders were to uh, feed the flock as well as the evangelists and, and such were to teach and remind brethren, although they weren't the shepherds. If I see these things that relate to the work and worship of the church, um, and then I read this verse in Philippians, verse 9, the things which you both learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do. Now, this verse has been used, and I, I think you could make some broader application, but we want to pay attention to original context. What did Paul mean when he said, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do? What primarily was he talking about? Well, Paul had been there with him, with them and taught them and helped them. And so he's like, the, the way that you've seen me act, the things that you've heard me teach, imitate those things, live like that. Yes, and in particular... Right before verse 9 is verse 8. Whatever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praise, think on these things. What had he just done in chapter 1? In difficult situations, he had chosen to look at what was true and honorable and pure and noble and focus on that. And he ended chapter 1 saying, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. When he was there, did they see him punished? Yeah. Yeah, beaten and, with rods. And, and he brings that up at the end of chapter one in very similar language, the last verse in chapter one, or the last two, it's been granted to you, and this is verse 29 of Philippians 1, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the, the whole purpose of Paul writing is to encourage them. They're going through what he went through, being persecuted. And when he was there and was beaten with rods, he went to jail and he started cursing out the jailer and all that, right? No. No, no he went to Same. jail with what? Saying and praying. Saying, yeah, saying praises to God. 
and then taught the gospel to the jailer and baptized him in, in the middle of the night. Okay, so then we get to chapter four, and he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Is that what Paul's been doing? Yep. Yes. Take your concerns to God with thanksgiving. Is that what Paul's been doing? Yep. Yes. Focus on what's good and right. Is that what Paul has been doing? The things that you saw in me and see in me do those things. So the primary point there had to do with Paul. Behavior. Rejoicing in persecution. Right. Uh, And so it's helpful to notice what's the primary point. Do you think that means that the Philippians were supposed to ignore whatever Paul taught them about the work and worship of the church? No. No, of course, if you're going to listen to the apostle Paul teach you in Christ how to behave, how to think, how to conduct yourself in these things, then of course, who should the Philippians also listen to and pay attention to when it comes to how to serve God? Yeah, the apostle. Yeah. Uh, So unless somebody has a comment, let's go to a case study, and that'll be Acts 20. But does anybody have a comment or follow-up or thought that you want to share on that before we go ahead? All right, let's go to Acts chapter 20. Yeah, real quick, Scott. Just I think one of the important things as we approach this question is just to, to say, listen, what we want to do is we want to be pleasing to God. We want to serve him. And so there's going to be times where we ask a question that says, well, what is God's will on this or on that? And there may not be a command. If there is a command, like let's listen to that. Let's pay attention to that. But there's not a thou shalt and thou shalt not for every single thing that we have a question about. And so when we don't have a thou shalt or thou shalt not, well, what did the apostles do? What did Paul teach about that? And when we come to that with a heart, it's not saying like, oh, let's make a bunch of rules, but just say, hey, like what, I want to figure out what pleases the Lord on this. Yes. We have more material than just commands to work with. Yes. And, And let's be careful to handle that in a way that we just want to please God. That's what we want to do. In fact, let's, with that thought that you just pointed out about those principles, let's jump back to the first example of example that you gave. Jesus got down and he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, you call me master and Lord, that's right. Just remember that the servant can't be above his master. So if our master is on the floor washing feet and we can't be above him, we need to realize how low we need to be able to go. But suppose somebody listening broadcast says, well, then, so you're saying that we have to have foot washing at church today. And of course, you've heard of churches that do that. Uh, There are certain churches where they will have foot washing Sunday. And everybody knows that that Sunday, there's going to be a ritual foot washing during the service. What do you suppose every mama makes sure about all of her kids before foot washing Sunday? That they have clean feet? (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, so you're going to show up with clean feet. And then, but in that conversation in John 13, when Jesus insisted on washing Peter's feet, because first he said, I'm going to wash your, when he's going to wash his feet, Peter said, no, you shouldn't wash my feet. He said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. And then Peter volunteered what? Wash everything about me. And Jesus replied, it's not you don't need to wash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you've had a bath, you know, recently, you the rest of your body doesn't need it, just your feet. What about their culture would have made their feet get dirty quick? 
wearing sandals, sandals and walking in the dirt. <laughs> yes. I, I understood more about this after being in Haiti in a village with no grass, basically. Everything was just packed dirt. And, uh, in, and in the house where I was staying, it was cinder. Some, some of the houses were just mud huts with a dirt floor and grass roof and, and some sticks. The one I was staying in had cinder block walls, concrete floor, sticks for rafters holding up some piece of metal, but there was no glass or screen in the windows. The window was just a place where there wasn't any cinder block. So the dust could come right in. And uh, I remember Elisa May would bring us a basin of water so we could wash our feet. Uh, that, that felt good. Uh, so if you're walking around, they, they didn't get walk from their kitchen into the garage, sit down in their air-conditioned car, push a button, drive to church, and walk in. They actually had dirty feet. So, so Scott, before you go on, what you're describing here is a cultural thing because if someone says, well, we don't do it today because it's not our culture, well, there's something to that because our, that's a culture back then that they did that. And also, uh, when Jesus was teaching that, he was teaching them um, an attitude of humility yes. from an individual perspective, not yeah. a collective yeah, this wasn't, he, was, he, he wasn't saying this is a, a sacrament that you'll do in church. This was, it, it's a way to act toward people. Uh, Abraham, if you remember, in Genesis, was it 19? Some men came and he made a feast and he brought water for their feet. Uh, Abigail offered to wash, I believe she offered to actually wash the feet herself of uh, the, David's men. And, of course, there's the incident in Luke 7. The sinful woman, when she wants to show her appreciation to Jesus, does what for her? Washes his feet. Yeah. She tears in her hair, right? John 13. Mm -hmm. John 13 is when Jesus washes the apostles' feet. Yeah. But does the woman in Luke 7, where did she get the idea to wash Jesus' feet? Did she read John 13? (laughs) No. No. No hadn't been written yet she gets the idea to do it because in that culture that's something you could do to show humility and service to someone so Stephen used the word principle and so this makes an interesting case study the principle involved in John 13 is that humility and lowering yourself to do what the other person needs and it very well may mean you need to wash their feet or it may mean you're visiting an elderly brother or sister in, in the hospital or the uh, assisted living, nursing care, and they haven't been able to clip their toenails. And their toenails are dirty and nasty. And guess what you may need to do? Wash. Well, in wash, you may need to trim their toenails. Oh, uh, yeah. And if you've lived long enough, you're going to visit uh, a brother who's going to need some help using getting to the bathroom or getting from the bathroom. And as Christians, what do we need, whether it's that their feet are dirty or their toenails need clipped or they need help to get to or from the bathroom, what do we need to be ready to do? Help them. Whatever way. Whatever way. That's learning from the example in John 13. So Scott, I'm getting the, go ahead, Drew. Scott, I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting the impression then, we need to not just say, do this, don't do that, do this, do that, but look at the 
example and understand deeper into what's being taught based on all of the information we can get from it. So we got to interpret then. And how do you then interpret between something that, in this case, you're talking about something that is cultural to show an example of humility as a, compared to an example that something is to be carried out that's outside of, let's say, that cultural thing? How, how, do we, how do we start learning the difference of when to actually carry out an example that we know we should do in a spiritual sense in, in, in uh, pleasing God? Well, let's, let's take a look at Acts 20 for a case study, an example of that. So uh, first off, if I were to ask you through God, or if just somebody came and visited you uh, in your worship service, because all four of us where we worship, uh, do we take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Yeah. 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 Do we do it on midweek Bible study? Nope. We do it each first day of the week? Yeah. So suppose somebody visits you and they say, why do you do that? What passage would you go to? Acts 20, verse primarily 7. All right. Somebody read that text for us, please. Okay. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Okay, so now I'm going to play uh, uh, the role of someone who thinks that, that it's not significant. And I'm going to make an argument that I've had presented before. Uh, you guys, you, 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 you look at this verse and you pick it. It doesn't say you need to do it on Sunday. It, that there's not a command to. You look at this one verse where it says that they did it on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, and, and you make that, you know, the, uh, you bind that, but you don't, you don't pay attention to the other parts of the text. So why do you select that one detail and ignore the other ones? For example, on the first day of the week, okay, so it was the first day, just happened to be maybe, just like, have you ever told somebody, hey, last Thursday I went fishing? Does that mean that, Everybody has to go fishing on a Thursday. Does that mean that you go fishing every Thursday? No, just like you said last Thursday, I went fishing. Maybe Luke is just saying, hey, and on the first day of the week, uh, this happened. Look, and there's some more details. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul discoursed with them intending to depart on the morrow. Do you only preach when you're leaving the next day? And he prolonged his speech till midnight. Last Sunday, did you guys finish before midnight? Why didn't you follow Paul's example? And there were many lights. Oh, so you can't have one light. You have to have many. Uh, in the upper chamber where they're gathered together, if you're going to take one thing out of this text, then you have to take it all. If you're going to say it should be on Sunday, then it should last till midnight. There should be many lights, and it should be in an upper room. So one of the things we have to ask anytime we come to a text like this is why are the details being given? What's the point? Because, I mean, Luke is writing the book of Acts, and there's going to be times where he includes some things that are fairly incidental. And there's going to be times where he includes some things that are significant. Um, take the example of here that he begins with on the first day of the week. How many times in Luke or in the book of Acts, how many times does he record what day of the week something happened on? 
Let's see. Stonia Stephen happened on what day? We don't know. Because it's not important. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized. Happened on what day? Oh, wasn't that Tuesday? We yeah. don't know. No, no, it wasn't Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, the Lord appears to Saul of Tarsus. What day of the week was it? Uh, no. Don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It's not recorded. Herod got eaten by worms on what day? Don't know. Mm. Not important. Um, when Luke tells us what time it is, there's a significance. So, for example, let's go back three chapters, Acts 17. It says, Now when he had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbath days reasoned from them from the Scriptures. So as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So maybe that that just means that Thessalonica, he happened to show up on a Sabbath and it happened, or is there a point to this? Well, that was his custom to do, and there's reasons to go to the synagogue because he knew he'd find Jews there. Yeah. On that day. Yeah. Are you going to find the Jews assembled at the, at the synagogue on Monday? Probably not. If you want to preach to a Jewish synagogue, what day do you need to show up? Saturday. The day they assemble on Saturday. And in Acts 20, if he wanted to address the disciples, because notice verse 7 doesn't say on the first day of the week when we gathered to hear Paul preach. The text says why. They were gathered together for a purpose to break bread. Yes, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, here's another point. If you, like, go to, uh, uh, if you've got Bible software on your computer or phone, or if you want to use Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway online, uh, try this. Do a search for second day of the week in the New Testament. How many results are you going to get? Zero. Type third day of the week. How much are you going to get? Zero again. Fourth day of the week. How much are you going to get? Ditto. If you type in Sabbath, you're going to get a bunch of references? Yeah. Mm -hmm. About day of preparation, which is you're going to get a little bit uh, the day before the Sabbath. But if you type in first day of the week, what's going to start showing up on your screen? You're going to get six results. It happened on that first day of the week. Yeah. So in Matthew, what's the first time you see that expression, day of the week? It's going to be in Matthew 28. Yeah. So Jesus' resurrection after the Sabbath on the first day of the week. First day of the week. In Mark, after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb Jesus written. In Luke, on the first day of the week. And then he emphasizes on that day and talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus on that very day. And then in John, Mary came to the tomb on the first day of the week. And then later on that day, on the first day of the week, the disciples are in the room. Jesus appears to them. And, and, and even if you go back to the old Testament, the day of Pentecost, which, uh, on the day of Pentecost, it's kind of interesting when you go back to the Old Testament, the day of Pentecost was the first day after the seventh Saturday 
from Passover, which meant even the day of Pentecost was on the first day of the week. Yeah. Early Christians, there's a reason that they met on the first day of the week, because it's the day that what had happened. The Lord was raised from the dead. Yeah. And do we in in do we have another instruction about something that early Christians were to do on the first day of the week? Oh, by the way, you're talking about early Christians, but very early, first several years, these were Jewish people who became Christians. So this was really would have been foreign to them to meet and worship God on the first day of the week when their background brought it in on the seventh day. In, in Acts 20 and verse 7, you've got we, it is include the brethren there, including Paul, who was a Jew, and Luke, who was a Gentile. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians, where, where's the passage that, where Paul tells the Corinthians when to set aside their funds to send for poor Christians in Jerusalem? First day of every week? I don't, is the word every week there? It's 1 Corinthians 16. Yeah, it does say every week. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Okay. Scott, Scott yeah. you had mentioned the term Paul, Jew, and uh, Luke, a Gentile. So you had Jews and Gentiles. Wasn't it true that in that time period, the first day of the week was a work week? A work day was not a weekend like we celebrate. So they would have had a, a problem there with work, and that's why in this particular case it was meeting at night. But wow. they worked on the first day of the week. Yeah, this is not that Paul started preaching at 10 a.m. and preached till midnight. Right. This is uh, in the evening, uh, and and he preached at midnight. So, and that brings up these other details. So let's look at the other details. If you have your Bible, please uh, open it and look at this with us. So remember, we set this up with the argument that is sometimes presented. These are just incidental details. It happened to be the first day of the week. They happen to be in an upper room. There happened to be many lights. He happened to preach some midnight. Why select one is significant? One, they're, they are significant for different reasons. The first day of the week was significant because that's when the disciples at Troas came together to take the Lord's Supper. The other ones are significant for details relating to the our friend Eutychus falling asleep, which is where this story goes. So let's take a look at it. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul discoursed with them, intending to part on the morrow, prolonged his speech till midnight. Why include that detail? It's getting late at night, and Eutychus is going to fall asleep in the window. Right. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. There sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, born down with deep sleep, and as Paul discoursed, yet longer, being born down by his sleep, he fell from the third story and was taken up dead. So that's the, 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 the narrative we're leading up to, and a lot of these things relate to that. So why include that it was the third story? High up, not on the first floor, but high up? Yeah. They're, they're not as dangerous if he fall out of the first story window. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Eutychus would have got any print time in the Bible if he had, you know, fallen two feet. Um, all right, what about the lamps? Why was why would Luke tell us there are many lights in this upper chimney? Well, first of all, they were not electric lamps or lights; they were oil. 
clamps. So it's it, going to be hot. It's going to be stuffy. And again, easier to fall asleep in a room like that. Yeah. Oil lamps are going to be consuming oxygen and putting out fumes and warming the air. Maybe that has a little bit to do with why Eutychus went and sat in the window. But yeah, we don't know all the details. He might have sat in the window because there wasn't room anywhere else. He might have sat in the window because he knew he was getting sleepy and, you know, he wanted to get some fresh air. But between the mini lights and Paul discoursing, it's kind of interesting that Luke was there. And it's Paul discoursing yet longer. You know, you can just see Eutychus taking up that. But then there's good news. Somebody take us through the rest of the text. Well, he, he falls out and he's taken up dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking it in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Yeah. So there was a point in telling us when Paul preached. He's waiting till they're gathered together, when the disciples would all be gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. There's a point to these other things, and I'll get to you in just a second, Stephen. There's some details he doesn't tell us because there's no point to them. You know what it doesn't say in this text? And he was wearing a gray woolen tunic. How do you know he was? That we know of. That's right. right. We don't know what he was wearing. And why don't we know what he was wearing? It doesn't matter. I've written it. doesn't matter. Yeah. Did the window face north, south, east, or west? Don't know. It doesn't okay. matter. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter to the story. Right, right. So there, there's a point to these other details. The point to these other details is not that we have to preach till midnight, we have to have many lights, or we have to sit in a window. That's not the point, but the point describing what happened. But as it describes when Paul spoke, it shows us when people under the teaching of the Apostle Paul came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to commemorate the Lord's Supper, and there's an obvious, obvious reason. It is the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection of Stephen. Yeah, and it's also just interesting that even the part where it says he's intending to depart the next day probably in some way explains why his sermon was so long. Right. I mean, if it's just if he's going to be there next week, he's like, okay, guys, we'll pick up next week. But like, if he's about to leave, and we know from later in this chapter, he's not expecting to see these people again. Right. There's a reason that like you prolong that last conversation as long as you can because he ends up talking basically all night long yeah. and uh, talks to them until the morning, and then he leaves. And so all of these details have to do with that circumstance. But the first day of the week, Luke includes that because, well, yeah, the first day of the week is when they were gathered to break bread. And that's significant, not just for them, but for Christians who believe in a Lord who rose on the first day of the week. So you're giving an example or you're giving an explanation on why that one action as a collective is an example but the other items are not examples to follow, but just parts of the story. Right, right. The other ones aren't a picture of what first century Christians typically did. Uh, they didn't typically fall out of a window and, and be taken up dead. 
Uh, they didn't, you know, Paul probably typically didn't preach till midnight, but as Stephen well pointed out, he's not expecting to see them again. So of course he wants to talk with them at length. But in the narrative, we also see when, when Paul goes to the synagogue, he knows when to go to the synagogue. And that's where Luke, Luke doesn't tell us, like we said, the stoning of Stephen, appearance of, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus. We're not told what day of the week those, day of the week those are because that's irrelevant. When he goes to the synagogue, we're told what day of the week it is because it's relevant. You're going to do that when they're there, which would be which day. And when he wants to speak to the Christians at Troas, he knows what day to go. He knows what day they will be gathered together. And again, the purpose for their gathering together, that's the day they would be gathered together to break bread in memory of their Lord. So Stephen, you had said before, uh, we're interested in wanting to please the Lord and to carry out our service and worship to him, both personally as well as collectively. If we didn't have this verse 7 here, when would we be doing what we do now on Sundays? Yeah, so there's six times in the New Testament where the first day of the week comes up. The first four, every single gospel ends with saying, Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. That's a big deal. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all went out of their way to say, this happened on this day of the week. When they and didn't then, that about other events. Right. And then uh, Acts chapter 20, we say, Luke, I mean, and I don't think Luke is like trying to give like the doctrine of like the day of the week. He just mentions it because that's what the early Christians did. Right. They got together on the first day of the week and they took the Lord's Supper. We know going back all the way back to Acts 2 that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, this taking of the Lord's Supper. And then we see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And he's t- there he's talking about, hey, I want you to take up this collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to do it every first day. He says every first day so that they'll be doing it a little bit each week. And when Paul gets there, they won't be scrounging, you know, and come up with a little bit because they haven't been saving up for it. But the reason he tells them to take it on the first day of the week is because that's when the Christians got together. And so when we put these details together and say, okay, God didn't give us a thou shalt assemble on the first day of the week. But when we read the New Testament and we say, well, what do we have to go on? What would be pleasing to God? Well, first day of the week is all we got to go on. Uh, if we wanted to get together, take the Lord's Supper on Tuesday, we don't have anything to go on with that. First day of the week is what we see the Christians doing. There's spiritual significance to it. And so that's what I'm going to stick with. That's what the, it's the example that the Lord has left us. And that's what we ought to follow. And when you get to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, there's a different expression, but I think this is what he's referring to. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, and I think that's a re- re- reference to the first day of the week. And we don't go by early uh, church writings and such, but there's an early writing that circulated, circulated very early among brethren that says, we don't follow the Sabbath. We follow the eighth day, the Lord, which the road, the, the, the day on which the Lord rose. Now he doesn't think that there's eight days in a week, but by eighth day, he means the day after the seventh day. Uh, so there we see some confirmation that that was understood in early years, but that's not where authority comes from. We want to look at the word. 
And there is a definite emphasis on the first day of the week. All the Gospels end with that. This is the day that it happened. The church also happened to be established on the day of Pentecost, which was on the first day of the week. And you, the collection, they were to lay by and store on the first day of the week. And when Paul wanted to meet with the Christians, he knew when to be there on the first day of the week when they would be gathered together to break bread. And I'm a Christian, so I want to do that. So you brought up uh, an example, no pun intended, of it's okay, in fact, it's proper and authorized to follow examples. In this case, was the first day of the week, worshiping and, and, and communion. Are there other, I'm sure there are, but what, what other examples are there on behavior as a collective? Well, we are at 244, so I don't know if we want to start another example yet. But if we, if we get enough questions on this uh, submitted, we might do another week on this in, in a couple of weeks. But our time is about up there for today. But if we, uh, let, let's just throw this out there. Uh, after the conversion account of Cornelius, in which there's all, the less was communicated in a number of ways with the sheet with the Spirit saying, you go with them, with the Holy Spirit falling on them and all that. When you get to Acts 15 and there's still some people that don't understand it or resisting understanding it, it's interesting to go through there. First, Peter gets up and he says, listen, the Lord already answered this when he sent me to Cornelius. That's not a direct quote, but if you look at Acts 15, you'll see the point. Paul, Peter is pointing back to the precedent. The Lord has already settled this, remember? So he points back to that precedent. Then you've got Paul and Barnabas are going to say, look, here's the miracles the Lord did among Gentiles becoming Christians without becoming Jews, which shows approval. And then you have James saying, and you know what? That agrees with those prophecies that talked about that there would be Gentiles. And you, you'll have those different things brought together and, they, and, and, and the case is made. So we look at scripture and we need to apply it. Pay attention to the context, but don't straightjacket it to their context. Bring it out to ours. And since Jesus, since the day Jesus rose from the dead hasn't changed, I'm still going to honor him on that day as they did. Because they were his disciples doing that then under apostolic guidance. That's what I'm going to do today. Amen. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Very good program. Thank you for your uh, discussion. And we didn't get any comments in today, so I want to invite the audience to send us in comments, either on this topic or anything else you'd want, want us to discuss in next week's uh, program. Thank you all, and have a great week. That's two weeks from now. Oh, we'll I'm sorry. I'm so glad. Two weeks. Scott reminded us. We will not be here next Tuesday. Thank you. See you all.